Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm chapter 95. Please follow along in your bulletins or on the screen above. Hear now the reading of the word. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Amen. What's up, 1 p.m.? Good to see all of you. Um, Always so exciting here during the greeting time, playing rap music and stuff. Timmy Kim DJing in there in the box. Um, Just very different vibe from the morning two services. Um, Good to see all of you. Today we're going to continue here at New Mercy talking about restoration. And for the past few weeks, we've been talking about restoration of worship. What is worship and what needs to be restored? Why do we even talk about restoration of worship and what does that mean? Um, So we're going to continue today to talk about what is worship, why it's important, and the attitude in which we should approach worship. So let's bow our heads and pray one more time as we invite the Spirit. Lord, we love you. Lord, we come together to worship you. Our King and Savior, we come together to honor you. Our Father and Mother, we come together to give you glory. Our Provider and Healer, we come together to thank you. May your Spirit move us, and may your presence restore us in this worship. Amen. So as I said, for the past few weeks, we've been looking at restoration of worship. And when we say worship here in the context in which we're talking about, we're talking about corporate worship, what we are doing right now, why we are sitting here, why I'm standing here, why we gather together on Sunday once a week to give praise, honor, and glory to our Lord God. And um, as I was prepping for our sermon uh, for this Sunday, there was a video that I kept running into, and I just this song inspired me so much. I kept playing it in, my, in the background as I was prepping. So I want to share with you this song before we begin. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Only sing of your love on Sundays. I will sing of your love on Sundays. Then this feeling is gone by. I will give you little 
them with the claws, they'll shut up. Amen. Amen. I'm glad no one's clapping here, right? That YouTube video clip was titled Wrong Worship. Wrong Worship. And um, I kept playing it in the background as I was, was prepping this week. That I memorized almost the whole song. And if you think about the words, it is hilarious, right? I exalt me. <laughs> I exalt, it's supposed to be I exalt thee, okay? Just in case you don't know the song. I exalt me. And sometimes when we worship, we don't really mean it. We don't really want it. This is what it looks like if you and I were to be bluntly honest. We put everything down and we say, this is what worship is for me. Oftentimes, the songs that we sing on Sunday worship, the corporate worship right now, the praise would look like this. I mean, beautiful voices, right? I mean, amazing voices, amazing songs, amazing lyrics. But God knowing the innermost thoughts and hearts of what we're going through. Although we're singing different song, different same song, but different lyrics, really, this is what we're thinking. I exalt me. I'm here for you, but really, not really, God. It's, it, I'm here for me. If we were to be honest, worship has become to many of us about ourselves. Worship has become to many of us Too much about our problems, our social relationships, our preferences, our status. Worship to many degrees has become a way in which we value ourselves while we forget about God. A few weeks ago, Pastor Key spoke about worship, and he said that worship shows what we delight in, right? What we revere, what we delight in. Pastor Hudson talked about last week, that worship shows what we love. Today, we're going to continue to look at worship as worship shows what we value. What do you value? What is this worship worth? If you look at the word worship, it actually comes from an old English word meaning worth-ship. So the word itself, the worship, the word itself comes from the root meaning, worth-ship. We are to gather together to celebrate joyfully and give thanksgiving to what is worth it in our life. The number one thing that we value. Worship, defined by Pastor Tim Keller, means an act of ascribing ultimate value for something. Ascribing ultimate value, the number one thing in our priority, and ascribing worth to that thing or that one in a way that engages all of who we are. Simply put it, worship is supposed to be us giving all of who we are to something or someone that we value the most. Pastor Keller continues with this illustration to kind of expand what he's talking about here. There was a woman who inherited this jewelry. It was a small jewelry piece. and She didn't really know what it was. She just knows that she got this from her mom, who got it from her mom, who got it from her mom. So she didn't look for it. This woman did not look for this jewelry. She didn't wear it. She didn't care for it. It was somewhere in the closet, and she just 
lost it in the mix. And one day, just one random day, she started cleaning up the house, and she found it again. And she thought, hey, I would like to know what this is worth. So she went downtown to a jeweler shop, and she asked the jeweler to appraise the value of this jewelry that she had found. So this jeweler, who has been in this industry for a long, long time, looks at this piece, doesn't really know what it is, and he starts examining it, doing his own research to find the value of this one piece of jewelry. And the minutes pass by, and minutes pass by, and as it does, he is in shock. Because what he realizes is that this piece that he's holding onto in his hands is the jewel, jewel that everybody in his industry has been talking about for years, but never found. That it's a piece that he's only read about in history books, but never knew that it actually existed. It's like that piece that, in, you know, in the movie Titanic, right? Showing up before him. And as he's examining the jewelry, he realizes this is worth more than any piece that he's ever sold or owned. In fact, it's worth more than his entire store and all the jewelry that he owns. Can you imagine if you're him? I mean, you're looking through those glasses and you're examining it and you just realize minute by minute, this is crazy. This is priceless. I can't believe I'm holding on to it. And as his eyes get big, as his palms are getting sweaty, as his heart's beating faster, can you imagine how the woman who owns this piece of jewelry would respond? She sees this man getting so excited. What do you think? She's getting excited as well. Her eyes get big. Her palms get sweaty. Her heartbeat's feeling faster. And she realizes before even the jeweler tells her that this piece is priceless. Now, if you own such a piece, would it be fair to say that this one piece of jewelry that's priceless, that all human beings want, would pay millions and millions of dollars for would that one piece of jewelry change your life? Oh, yeah. It will. It will change your life. And what this woman, the owner of the jewelry, realizes that she has not lived in accordance with the value of what she had. She has been living completely unaware and unaffected by this one priceless jewelry that she owns. But now that she knows now that she's aware, now that she knows the value, the worth of this one piece of jewelry, do you think she's going to live differently? Oh, yeah. Like the jeweler, we examine God. We test God. We carefully study over God, even with doubt, until it dawns on us the true value of who God is. And once we understand and acknowledge the true value of God, once God becomes our ultimate value, our entire life changes, whether you like it or not. If you truly believe that God is the number one priority in our life, that He's worth so much more than anyone, anything that I own, then your life is going to change. 
to what do you ascribe your ultimate value? What's the number one thing that's important in your life? So I asked myself that question. If someone were to ask me, John, hey, what's the number one thing that's worth the value in your life? I would have to say my wife and my kids, right? I guess that's the answer that I should give. (laughs) So I'll say, I mean, it is. My wife and my two kids would be the ultimate value in my life. So worth it that they are priceless in my life. That I will give up anything of that I own in my life to be able to sustain my kids and my wife. And it sounds so romantic and so amazing, but I'm sure many of you guys think about uh, would answer that question that way too. But if they are the ultimate value in my life, then everything that I do, everything I think about, all the schedules that I make, how I spend money, where I'm going to live, what I'm going to do for a living, it affects what I do. It's influenced by what I value. So, for example, if I value my kids and my wife, then it is going to influence and determine how I spend money. It's going to determine where I'm going to live. It's going to determine their needs and their desires and how I'm going to meet that expectation. So every day, every week, every month, every year, I'm going to think about them as I make big decisions in my life as well as small decisions in my life. And that's what giving ultimate value to something does. It makes you think twice about the decisions that you make in regards to the thing that you give ultimate value to. So I want to ask you again, what is the most valuable thing in your life, and how does it affect your life? Is it fame? Is it popularity, salary, money, job, close friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, family, spouse, children, security, having fun? Whatever it is, we all have something that we give ultimate value to. And that determines to many degree the decisions that we make, small and big. And since we've touched upon the importance of keeping Sabbath, right, coming Sunday, having corporate worship together, and why that's important, I won't go too much into detail about that. But today we want to talk about the attitude in which we come to worship, the heart of worship, what kind of preparation is necessary and is needed before we gather here one day a week to give God his ultimate worth, ultimate value. Ultimately, the problem with our worship is that we value ourselves more than God. That's what it kind of comes down to, right? We think that we, I, am worth more than God. Therefore, the worship in which many people who gather together who believe I am worth more than God, I exalt me, You gather a bunch of those people together, what does worship become? It becomes worship about ourselves. We reflect of ourselves. We think about ourselves. We ask God for what I want, what I need, what I desire, all great things, necessary things, but that's where it stops. And that's the problem. Because we give our ultimate value to ourselves, not God. We think we are more worth than God. 
And that's why our corporate worship is considered to many people and many occasions a waste of time. And if you think about it, it makes sense, right? To people outside of church or people who even attend church, to some of us even, don't you ever wonder, why do we even get together Sunday morning, afternoon, and worship God? Such a waste of time. Look, it's so busy. Our lives are so busy Monday through Friday that, you know, it takes me a month Three to four weeks in advance just to make a meeting between three, four people. So Friday, uh, you work, you finally come home, and you're so tired, but you're like, weekend starting. Thank God it's Friday. And you might go out for dinner, hang out with buddies. And then Saturday, if you're like me, I have kids, and my entire day is, is just family activities, right? And many of us live this kind of lifestyle. And then there's Sunday. The one day where you can sleep in, rest, watch football games, watch basketball games, right? Go out and golf if the weather's beautiful like today. One day where I can rest and rejuvenate and and get ready for the wicked Monday to come. And yet we get up, we get ready, and we come to church and we have worship. Why? You can understand why people outside of the church or even who come to church think, this is kind of a waste of time. And theologically, you can argue that too, because you can argue that, you know what, what's the point? Because God loves us no matter what. I've accepted Him as my Savior, my personal Savior. I believe that Christ died on the cross for me and then resurrected. Therefore, God loves me no matter what. It's not like He's going to love me more and bless me more because I come on worship on Sunday. So, I'm not going to get anything extra here. Why do I need to come? Right? It's such false theology. We have the distorted understanding of who God is. In fact, what's happening there is we're taking advantage of God's grace and love and saying, you know what? He's going to love me anyway, so I'm just going to do whatever I want. Right? It's like being in a relationship and saying, you know what? My girlfriend's going to love me anyway, so I'm just going to go around and do whatever the heck I want vice versa. It shouldn't work that way. That's not true love. But that's how we treat God. We take advantage of God's grace. So we come to worship. And rather than looking at it as a privilege, an honor to give Him all the glory and honor which He deserves because He is and should be number one valuable thing in my life. And instead we come and we exalt me. We celebrate me. I ask God what I want. I pray to Him about what I need. I yell at Him for the things that I didn't get yet. I get frustrated with God because He didn't give it to me the way I want it, when I want it. And it becomes about me. This worship becomes about us. And that's not the kind of worship, worship, that the scripture talks about. It's similar to thinking, we have God's grace secured by having faith. So what do I need to regularly participate in corporate worship with others and forfeit this precious Sunday? God loves me anyway, so I could do whatever I want. My worth versus God's worth. Worship can be stuck in a pool of selfishness if the focus is on the worshiper 
not the one who needs to be worshipped. The focus is on the worshiper, not the worship. Then there's a problem. Our corporate worship then becomes mere act of service to ourselves as we praise and honor ourselves, as we ascribe our ultimate value to ourselves, as we're blinded by our own perception of beauty and strength, our own beauty, our own strength, that we no longer see nor understand nor care about God. Therefore, worshiping God can be optional, and at worst, we can think of it as a waste of time. Don't need to do it. But whose perception? Our perception. From our view, our perspective, this seems like waste of time. But let's flip it. Let's say you were God. I was God. How would things change? I created these beautiful brothers and sisters, all these children, each by hand, named them, loved them, cared for them, graced them. Even though when they sinned, even though when they fell, ran away from me, I went to them, will welcome in arms and embrace them. And I will continue to do so. And I asked these children that I've created and loved, say, hey, out of seven days, can you come to church one day, have corporate worship to remind each other how amazing God is, to give thanks and honor and glory? Just one day. You know what? Not even that one full day, 24 hours. Just hour and a half at New Mercy. Compared to some churches, maybe an hour or two hours. But just two hours a week. Come and worship me. Remember me. Love me. Let me love you back. And you're, none of your children's do it every week, in and out. (laughs) Just think about it. If you're a God, how disappointed, how frustrating would it be? We think this is not worth it? We think this is waste of time? Let's flip it. From God's perspective, it's total waste of time. I'm gathering my children around who don't listen to me, who don't obey, who don't care about me, who don't love me, and I pour out everything that I have, every part of who I am. It's not a waste of time for us. It's total waste of time for God. And yet, He shows up every church, every worship to remind us I'm a gracious God. I'm here for you. Whatever you bring, I want. Whatever value you place on me, I know it's not what it should be, but I still want you to come and give your full attention, full worship. Why? Because God's worth it. He reminds us through passages like Psalm 95, how important it is to worship and give God what is worth. If you think about our worship, that what we're doing right now, it's such a privilege. It's a gift. God's saying, I created these beautiful children, and I just want you to do this. I'm giving you an opportunity to love me. You know, there are people in this world who don't have this opportunity, who don't have this freedom to worship. They don't get to sing when they want to. They don't get to read the word, the scripture when they want to. 
In fact, some people have to hide because if they show it, they get imprisoned or they lose their lives. They get fined or their family's in trouble. Ten years ago, I went to China, and I've been to China numerous times, and I went to China ten years ago for a mission trip. And I remember I went with my former church and with the head pastor, myself, and a few other members. And we were actually on our way to NK, and we stayed in China for about two weeks beforehand. And my pastor said, you know, the type of pastor he was, is he never really told me anything, like not, nothing in detail. He's like, we're going to go to China. I was like, okay, I trust you. We'll go. So we go to this place that looks like an empty factory. The gate's kind of open. We go in, gate shut. And then he tells me, hey, John, guess what? Um, I'm going to have to go to another town. What he meant was another city about eight hours away. Okay, so like, next door city, town in China can take hours and hours on train. And he was just like, I'm just going to leave here for seven days. I want you to teach these teenagers who are here, which they call the seminary, right? 16, 17, 18-year-olds, about 20 of them in a class. I want you to train them for a week. I was just like, thanks for telling me in advance. And by the way, this factory-looking thing called seminary, oh, it's an underground seminary. It's like, what? Underground in the sense that if you get caught, you'll get in trouble. Okay? So I'll see you in seven days. Now I'm like, what is going on right now? So he leaves and I stay in this camp, like an empty factory, small factory, for seven days, sleeping there, eating with them, sleeping with them, and really uh, spending time with them, worshiping God, praising God. And I remember what shocked me was second day, they had this kind of like solemn, quiet alarm that went off. And then all of a sudden, they all started running around everywhere. And I kid you not, within five minutes, the entire place of worship, where people praised and lifted God and read the Bible, five minutes, it turned into a factory. It was a doll-making factory. They, they lifted doors from underground that I didn't know about. They would throw all their Bibles in there. They would hide the guitars. They would hide the keyboard. They would hide the praise music and hymnals. And I remember being so emotional just sitting there, watching people going frantic because they had a hidden camera outside, and if the guards come, they can get in trouble. They can do random checks. So they do these test runs, and now they're sewing dolls. I remember being shocked just, just watching that happen for five minutes and getting really teary, not because I like to cry, but... And not because I was scared, but because I was so moved. I was so moved by the fact that we live here on the States where we have full freedom to open up the Bible and read the Scripture, to lift my hands up during worship and sing loud as I want, quietly as I want. I can close my eyes. I can open them. I can sit quietly. I can stand up. I can play instruments or not. And there are these people in parts of the world still today that have to stay underground in order to worship, to show God what is fully worth. This privilege, this honor, if you think about it, 
how often do we waste it? We come to corporate worship thinking about my schedule. What's next? Who am I going to talk to? How am I going to dress up? How am I going to sing? How am I going to pray? What's coming up next week? We're on our phones. We're, we're thinking about other things, everything else but God. And I'm not saying it's doable all the time. I mean, we're human beings. You know, we're sinful and we're fallible. But I just want to challenge us to think about it. If God is truly the number one thing of our value, number one in our priority list, then every thought, every action throughout the week should affect and be influenced. Right? Including when we come to corporate worship. And what does that mean? I don't know. For each of us, it might be different. If we want to change our priority and we want to say, God, you are worth so much more than what I give you right now, then what would change in your life? How you come to church? When you come to church? What kind of attitude or heart of worship you come here with? I hope something changes. When we look at today's scripture, Psalm 95, it's kind of like many other psalms or many other scripture readings in the Bible where it talks about celebration of God, of worship, giving Him all honor and glory, being humble, bow down. But Psalm 95 is unique among the psalms because not of the celebration and the joyfulness and the humbleness in which we need to come to God for what it's talking about from verse 1 through 7a. Verse 1 through 7, about two-thirds of this scripture, is really talking about what other many other psalms talks about. Poetry, song about how we are to worship God. It says, verse 1, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Sing, joyfulness. Let us shout aloud to the rock of salvation. Shouting, because we're so excited for God. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. You see the, the attitude in which we're supposed to come to worship? We bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Showing our humbleness. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Verse 7, that's how verse seven, half of verse 7 ends. If you read it up to that point, it sounds so much like other psalms. But Psalm 95 here is very unique and special, not because of just first seven verses, but the three and a half verses that come after. It was a gathering song of praise, this Psalm 95, with prophetic warning. It called the people to worship and hear the word of God, but reminded them of their ancestors' disobedience and God's wrath to come when you don't worship. Worship in Psalm 95 includes both celebratory language, joyfulness, calm worship, humbleness, and repentance language. 
at the same time. Today, if only you would hear his voice, and then it goes to verse 8. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day in Massa in wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are people whose hearts go astray. They have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. What is he talking about? He's saying, look, come celebrate. That's what worship is about. Give thanksgiving. Be humble. Kneel. Joyfulness. But, but, then it turns. Be careful. Because this is what worship is. And when you don't give me full worship, when you don't value me in your life as number one, as the Israelites did in the wilderness, that's what the psalmist is talking about. Going back to the time of Exodus, when the Israelites were lost in the wilderness, God God had taken them out with Moses, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And for 40 years they're traveling. And God said, there's a land of milk and honey, promised land for you. I have it prepared. You just need to get there and trust me. And they start mumbling and grumbling and arguing, getting angry at God. God, I'm hungry. It was better back in slavery days. Okay, I'll give you food from the sky. What else? God provides over and over again, speaks to them, gives them the commandment, constantly reminding them, get to the promised land. I have something amazing ready for you. And yet this generation of Israelites during the Exodus time, time of Masa and Meribah, right? They start distrusting God. And they forget about God. And they don't worship God. God has every right to get frustrated and angry. Says, I got you out of slavery, man. I saved you. You're the generation that saw the sea split in half as the Egyptian soldiers died behind you. You are the, you are the generation that saw the ten plagues. And you still don't trust me fully? You still don't give me the true value of what I'm worth? So God got angry and frustrated, and that generation never makes it into the promised land. But you know what's amazing? Even though we don't give him, God, full worship as he deserves, God's still gracious. That generation didn't get into the promised land, but God didn't abandon the Israelites. God still stuck with that group. And for their children, God entered the promised land with Joshua and gave them more than they could ever imagine. I mean, and the story of Israelites go up and down again, right? Up and down. Worship God, don't worship God. Worship God, don't worship God. But even through the ups and downs, what's amazing is that our God is still gracious and never abandons them as he never abandons us. Even though we don't prioritize God. Even though we gather together corporate worship on Sunday. We don't give him his true value, true worth, all of who we are. Therefore, the Psalm 95 must be taken together, the first half and the second. We gather together. Worship is about celebrating how much God's worth in our lives. But 
there's a warning. <laughs> Be careful. Don't forget. Stop disobeying. You know, continue to trust in who God is and what God can do in our lives. And that gracious God, that loving God, is why we worship. Because each one of us, God created us with the intention to worship Him. Intended, we are created with the intention to give Him all glory and honor, all of who we are. And I want to challenge us to really think and pray about that. Is God that valuable to you? How much is God worth to you in your life? I want to ask, invite all of us to just close your eyes and let's pray. I want us to evaluate our heart of worship, our attitude in which we come before the Lord in this corporate worship. If, if God, you were the number one thing in my life, as I come prepared to worship, then how would my life change? What would it look like? Would the way I wake up on Sunday morning change? When I come to church change? How I come to church change? What I think about during worship change? How I praise God changes? How I serve God changes? And if there's anything that you can think about as you pray, man, I know, I know that if I was honest with myself, that I exalt myself more than God. And there are things of this world that come before the Lord in my life. I want to spend this time to just kind of repent and pray. Lay before the Lord. And as we pray in repentance, it's, repentance isn't like, I have to cry and just like clench my fist. and No. Repentance, just offering up to God. This is what I do wrong. This is what I need to work on. This is what I need to change. So let's ask God and lay before the Lord if there's anything that gets in the way of fully giving of our heart to our Lord as we worship. Let us pray.